Now hear God's word from Luke chapter 7 as we continue our study in Luke's gospel. The disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father in heaven, we look to your word for life, for food, for strength, for courage, for rebuke, for exhortation. Father, we need to hear you speak to us today. So by your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and open up our ears to receive what your word has to say to us. May I not be any kind of distraction from that. And I pray that you deliver us from all error, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. Did U.S. astronauts really land on the moon in 1969? Who really shot President John F. Kennedy? Are there alien spacecraft in a warehouse somewhere in Roswell, New Mexico? And is Elvis Presley working in a Waffle House in Little Rock, Arkansas? You could probably ask more questions. There are so many, as you think about it, so many conspiracy theories about all different kinds of things, about historical events and about celebrities. It seems like every third person you meet is confident that they know the real story behind the story, that you think uh, you know what happened, but they know the thing that the news and the media are not telling you. They heard it from their mother-in-law's hairdresser's son's college roommate. And you know that has to be true, that, uh, that we do in fact have alien spacecraft in a, in a warehouse in New Mexico. What makes conspiracy theories so attractive? What, what makes them so appealing? And why do so many otherwise normal, ordinary people carry around half a dozen conspiracy theories with them at any given time? Well, one reason is we really don't get uh, the whole story from the news ever. And that's not just, that's not me being tinfoil hat wearing, you know, guy to say that. If there's always something left out of the news. And in fact, many times we get information that's flat out wrong when it's reported. If you've ever been close to a noteworthy event and then read about it in the paper the next day, you see that what you read is not what really happened. And what's funny is when we read a story that we know not to be true in the newspaper and we say, oh, that's full of error. But then we flip the page and we read some gossip about somebody or we read something that happened on the other side of the world and we take it at face value. Isn't that kind of a, a dissonance, a cognitive dissonance going on there that we're, we say, oh, that can't be true, but that is absolutely correct. Well, the fact is we really don't always and, and we don't get the whole story. This, this helps fuel this conspiracy mindset. 
And another reason is that, uh, that, that people carry around conspiracy theories is the fact that there really are conspiracies. Psalm 83 says, the enemies of God conspire together. Wicked men really do come together and plot evil and they try to get away with it. And sometimes they do it in such a way that we'll never know what went on and how they did what they did. Now, of course, neither of these two points, the uh, fact that we can't fully rely upon the news media, the fact that really people do conspire together to commit wickedness, neither of these two points prove that our conspiracy theories are true. We could believe there to be a conspiracy, that there's more to the story, when in fact the truth is very ordinary. It's very plain and it's more, the truth is more boring than our narrative. Or there really could be something crazy happening, but our version of crazy is too mild. In fact, something even worse is happening than what we believe, but we won't know either way. So yes, the news gets things wrong, and yes, men really do plot evil, but there's more to this conspiracy mindset than the, just these two factors. There's something attractive and satisfying about being the person who thinks they know the real story, the person who knows the story behind the story. There's, there's some form of arrogance there, or very least uh, self-importance there, and knowing the real story that all you sheep have missed, you know? It's, it's also our way of responding to and dealing with the uncertainty and the powerlessness we feel today. So much of our lives are outside of our control. There's so much information. Things are moving at an incredible pace. We don't know where it's all going. We don't know what it means. And so therefore we can't accept anything at face value we can't accept that all these crazy things going on uh, don't have some connection, some narrative, some overarching plot holding all of it together. It's our way of assigning a story to a wild uh, set of seemingly random events. You look at a page full of dots and your brain wants to connect them together and make a picture out of them. And so we do the same thing with events. We're perhaps also more cynical and less hopeful. We have been trained to hope for the worst and not for the best. And that leaves us feeling like there's nothing we can believe, that even what we think we know is suspect, that we can't even know what we know and we can't be sure that we know what we know. What can we trust? What can we rely on? But you see, if you allow yourself to to go in that direction without any breaks on, you find yourself in a rabbit hole of doubt and fear and despair where eventually you can know nothing and you can believe nothing. What this produces is the kind of person who's never satisfied with any kind of answer. There's always another level. There's always more suspicion. There's never rest. There's never peace. There's never confidence that we can know anything for sure. So in this climate of doubt and subjectivity where no one says this is true and we know it to be true and we can say it confidently, in this, in this environment of doubt, one of the most radical things we do every Lord's Day is stand together and recite the Apostles' Creed. We say together every Lord's Day, yeah, we know these things to be true. And we're not apologizing for it. And we're not being a little reserved about it. No, in fact, these things are true. And we're staking our eternal lives on the fact that these things are true. We stand by this. We're 
we're all in on the content of the Apostles' Creed, for example. Now, this is foreign in a world that doesn't want to own up to anything, that doesn't want to declare anything true or false, a world that doesn't want to engage in absolutes, a world that has no confidence in saying, that's right, that's wrong, that doesn't know whether anything can be trusted or even if there is such a thing as truth. But you and I, you see, this is what's so radical. You didn't know how radical you were, did you? You didn't know when you woke up this morning, man, I'm, I'm pretty out there. I'm pretty radical. No, you are. Because we hear God's word read and we say, thanks be to God. We're saying we believe what we just heard is true and good. And I need it. Now, that's not the same thing as saying we understand everything perfectly. That's not to say we have explored all of the mysteries of the Bible to their fullest and there's no more mystery left. That's not the same thing as saying that we have all the answers. No. What we're saying is God has all the answers. His word is the revelation of those answers and our ears are tuned to it. Now that's, that's radical. That's out there. That's different. This, this intersection of doubt and faith, this question of what we know and what we confess and how well we know it and how we can know we know it, is at the center of our reading in Luke's gospel today. You're well familiar with the story. This account appears both in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Uh, where We left John the Baptist back in chapter 3, and you remember he was imprisoned by Herod for speaking out boldly against the despicable adultery of Herod with his brother's wife. John was not known for soft peddling truth. He was not known for, his hallmark wasn't speaking softly and, and, and trying to, uh, you know, uh, dress things up nicely. He wasn't gentle or polite when he addressed sin. When insincere people came to him for baptism, what did he call them? He said, you brood of vipers, who has warned you from the, to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers, you baby snakes, you sons of the serpent is what he's calling them. And the same boldness to call sin, sin is what got him in trouble with Herod. Now in prison, God, uh, John gets reports about all the amazing, wonderful things that Jesus has been doing that we've been reading about the last couple of weeks. He's healing people. He raised the dead. He teaches with an authority unknown among the scribes and the Pharisees. What he's not doing yet is the thing that John the Baptist said he would do. And that is come clean out the threshing floor. Lay the axe to the root of the fruitless trees and cast them into the fire. That's what John said Jesus was coming to do. And John knows this and John says that Jesus is doing it because the prophet who told of John's coming said he would do that. You know, Malachi is the one who tells us, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. That's Malachi. And that same prophet, Malachi, who talks about the coming of John also says about the coming of Jesus, who may abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. The day is coming that will burn as an oven and the proud and all that do wickedly shall be stubble and the day that comes will burn them up. That's the message of Malachi that John the Baptist has internalized and now he's preached it back to the people. He preached it to Herod and and now he's in prison because of this message. 
And now he hears reports of what Jesus is doing and he wonders, okay, when do we get to that part? When do we get to the fire and the wrath? When, when do we get to the judgment? Or did I have it all wrong? Did I miss something? You see, John comes thundering the message of wrath and judgment. He expects Jesus to take it even further, to set things in order. But the only kind of judgment that Herod has seen so far, I'm sorry, the only kind of judgment that John has seen so far, the only kind of judgment that John has seen is the poor judgment of Herod in sending him to prison for speaking the truth. So John looks around and says, you know what? Sinners are not being judged. The wicked are not getting what's coming to them. Herod is still having drunken parties. I can hear them at night. What's going on? When does this all get sorted out? This is all very out of step with what John the Baptist expected. So now Jesus gives a very tender and direct response back to him. And we can break this section into uh, three parts. The first, the first part is the question of John's followers and Jesus's reply. The second section we'll look at quickly is Jesus praising and commending the work of John. And then the third section is a rebuke that Jesus levels at Israel for rejecting both John and Jesus. So with John, as we look at this, I want us to see the doubts of a godly man who was confused by what Jesus was doing and by the circumstances he found himself in. It, by the way, circumstances he got in by being faithful. Not, he, he's not in prison because he sinned. He's not in prison because he wasn't faithful to God. He's now in this place because he's been faithful and he's trying to reconcile his reality with his, with his understanding. And John represents one kind of doubt, a, if we could say, a faithful doubt, a, a doubt that says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe, Lord, Lord, help me believe. That's the, that's the kind of questioning and doubting that we see present in John. A doubt that seeks answers in all the right places. And then John, uh, I mean, and then, and then Jesus addresses the doubts of Israel, who in their doubting disbelief, didn't want to deal with their own sin and submit themselves to the Lord Jesus. They, they were more than doubters. They were scoffers. And we'll see them in this passage. And what I hope that we'll see as we work through this is the only way to deal with our doubts, the only way to answer our questions is to deal with them as John did. And that is to take our questions directly to Jesus, to be open in hearing what he has to say and hold on to that in spite of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in and not be the kind of restless people who endlessly scoff and doubt, sort of like conspiracy theorists who continually doubt and doubt and doubt and no question is satisfactory. John sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. He says, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now that sounds like an innocent question on one level, but there's also a little barb in there. Remember, John is a righteous man Jesus is going to say about John, there's no greater prophet than John, but he's still an imperfect man. He's imperfect. He is, he is a sinner. And so there may be a little scolding in there from John to Jesus. In other words, if you're the coming one, you need to get started on what the scriptures say your mission is. If you're the one we're expecting, then do something. 
And when Jesus gets this question, Jesus then demonstrates his power in the presence of John's messengers. That very hour, right in front of them, he cures infirmities, afflictions. He casts out evil spirits. He gives sight to the blind. And then he says, go tell John the things that you just saw and the things you heard. Jesus references what Isaiah said about the coming of his kingdom. He said, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All the things that the prophet said about me, John, I'm doing. And John, you said that I would sift the wheat from the chaff. That's what I'm doing. But I'm doing it in a way that you didn't anticipate. I'm doing it in a way that is confusing to you by the way that I'm healing and delivering and casting out demons and raising the dead to life. I am sifting the nation of Israel. And in fact, the way that I'm doing it doesn't diminish my identity as Messiah. It confirms it. Now, if John's question had a little barb in it, you know, are we waiting for somebody else? Are you going to get to work? If John's question had that little barb, Jesus response has a subtle, gentle rebuke. Jesus ends his his response with this. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. A, a A little promise of blessing to the one who accepts what Jesus is doing, to the one who is patient, who trusts that Jesus knows what he's doing and is going to wait to see everything work out. Even if that means for John that he's going to have to sit in prison and die as a martyr and not get to participate any further in the mission of Jesus. John has to wait, and that's Jesus' response to him. Well, that's the first section here, but in this next section, John turns to those who are left standing and watching, and he praises the work and ministry of John. Now listen to this as I read it, because Jesus asks three times this question, what did you expect? What did you go out to see when you went to see John in the wilderness? Listen to this, verse 24. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. When this Herod, who is currently reigning, Herod Antipas, came to power, he selected as the symbol of his reign a reed. Uh, There were many reeds around the Sea of Galilee in the beds and the marshes around Galilee. Uh, You could always see reeds everywhere swaying in the breeze. A reed symbolized for them beauty and fertility. A reed bends, but it doesn't break in the wind. It's flexible. So Antipas loved the reed and he used it as his symbol and he stamped it on all of his coins. Now Jesus asked the people here, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? They know what he's talking about. He's talking about Herod. Were you looking for a new king that's just like the old king? Another Herod? Is that what you wanted when you heard that John the Baptist was out preaching in the wilderness and baptizing? Is that what you were looking for? Another Herod? Another reed? What did you go out to see? He says, a man clothed in soft garments. And the word that he uses there might have an overtone of effeminate garments. Is that what you expected? Some rich, spoiled, trust fund kid? Some some fashion kid? I tell you, Jesus says, you find those kinds of people in king's courts, not in the wilderness. 
Now, both of these questions reveal again Jesus' sense of humor. Nobody goes out into the wilderness to watch reeds bending in the wind. No one goes out in the wilderness expecting to see a fashion show, right? Jesus is driving this point home. When you went out to the wilderness, you went out to see a prophet, right? Yes. Okay, that's what you got, a prophet. You went out to see a prophet. You got a prophet, indeed more than a prophet, the greatest prophet ever. So if it was a prophet you went out to see, and if it was a prophet you then saw, why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you hear his message? Why didn't you follow him? Why weren't you baptized? Why were you embarrassed by him? What did you think you were going out to see and hear? Verse 27, Jesus says, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi. For I say to you among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. There's no greater prophet than John. And yet whoever's least in this new kingdom that I'm bringing in is greater than John is. John belonged to the time of promise. You belong to the time of fulfillment. John was the greatest in the old world, but there's a new world that's coming in. The world that John's ministry paved the way for is breaking into this, this, this creation. And now there's something more important than following John, and that's entry into this new kingdom. Now, after Jesus says this, there's a line of division that becomes clear among those who were listening. Verse 29. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. The people, Luke says, the people, even the tax collectors, justified God. Well, that's a curious little phrase, isn't it? What does that mean? They justified God. And I think what Luke is saying there is that the repentance and faithfulness, the fruit shown by all these manner of sinners and outcasts, it vindicated, it legitimized God's plan of salvation through Jesus. Their response to the good news proved the success of John's work and Jesus's work, of of God's mission through them. But the Pharisees and lawyers scoffed. They rejected everything they heard and saw, and this was evidenced by their refusal of baptism. So now we come to this third little section, last part we're going to look at today. Jesus turns to this group of scoffers who didn't receive the baptism of John, who don't believe anything that's going on, and he singles them out and speaks to them. Verse 31, and the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all of her children. Jesus uses another fun little parable to expose them. Those who had rejected Jesus and John are like children playing games. They're like a group of children who cannot be pleased, who won't be satisfied. Their friends say, hey, let's play wedding and let's dance and sing happy songs. And the children say, no, I don't want to be happy. I don't want to dance and sing and play wedding. 
And the, and the group of friends say, okay, well, I tell you, well, let's play funeral. Let's, let's sing sad songs. Let's bury a bird or a mouse and let's have a big weepy funeral. Let's play funeral. And the children say, no, we don't want to play that either. We don't want to play happy games. We don't want to play sad games. We don't want to sing happy songs. We don't want to sing sad songs. You can't please them no matter what you do. Why not? Why can't you please them? Because they don't want to play unless they get to make up the rules. They don't want to play unless they're in charge, unless they're in command. That's what these Pharisees are guilty of. John came in rough clothing, eating a rough diet. He was an austere man, preaching a powerful, forceful, hard-edged message of repentance and judgment and damnation. Pharisees didn't like him. They said he had a demon out there in the wilderness acting like that. Well, okay, well, Jesus comes. What does he do? Feasting, eating, drinking, enjoying a somewhat more normal life, offering forgiveness and healing. And what do they say to Jesus? Well, he's a glutton and a drunkard, which, by the way, is the charge that parents bring against a rebellious son in Deuteronomy. When, uh, in Deuteronomy, when it says, what do you do with a rebellious son? You bring him to the elders of the city and the gates of the city, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. And if that proves to be true, they stone him in the gates of the city. That's what the Pharisees are alleging that Jesus is. They're saying he is a rebellious son of Israel. He's not a faithful son of Israel. So the Pharisees don't like him either. They don't like John. They don't like Jesus. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is not with the message and the problem is not with the messengers or the lifestyle of the messengers. The problem is in the proud, unrepentance, scoffing, disbelieving attitudes of these men. Jesus didn't play by their rules. John didn't play by their rules. They were like children who were not happy no matter what game you tried to play. But Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all her children. Justified. That's the same word he used just a minute ago. Same word used earlier, the people justified God. They vindicated God's plan and showed it to be effective and powerful. God's plan was transformative. Wisdom justifies her children, Jesus says. Wisdom's children are those who are aligned with God's plan and purpose, unlike the stubborn Pharisees who oppose God's purpose. So what I want you to see today between these two poles, you have John on the one hand, and the Pharisees on the other hand. We see two very different ways of addressing doubt. In this case, doubts about the mission, the work, the person of Jesus, but it's a template for all the doubts that you and I contend with. Doubts about the character and revelation of God. Doubts about what God requires of us. Doubts about the future. Doubts about how things are going in our lives in the world. How do we address and how do we deal with the doubts and the questions that we have? Well, we have two examples. You can either act like John or you can act like the Pharisees. Notice this. When When John addresses his doubts, he he finds himself in this extremely stressful and trying set of circumstances. I'm not sure any of us can fully imagine or relate to what John is going through when he sent his questions to Jesus. He has given his entire life to see the coming of Messiah and the success of Messiah's mission. And now it's not going according to the script that he had in mind which causes him to send questions to Jesus. And notice this, that Jesus doesn't rebuke his question. In fact, he says, John is the greatest. John is the best ever. Jesus doesn't say faithful people never have doubts. 
Jesus doesn't say faithful people never ask questions. In fact, faithful people often have times of uncertainty and confusion. Remember Elijah's dark period after he had this great victory against the prophets of Baal? Elijah spirals into a pit of depression after that great mountaintop victory. Think about David's expressions of of questions and doubt and fear and uncertainty throughout the Psalms. It's not that faithful people never have questions. The issue is how do you go about answering those questions? How do you go about getting those questions resolved? John brings his doubts to the only source of truth. And Jesus demonstrates who he is in such a way that he answers John's questions. For us to answer our complicated questions and fears and confusion, you and I have to submit ourselves to what God has revealed in Jesus and then hold fast to it in spite of whatever circumstances we're in. You cannot answer your doubts and your questions and your fears inside your own head. You will never get your questions and your doubts answered if all you do is go over them in your head. The answers to your questions are not in your heart. They're not in your stomach. They're not in your soul. They're not in your mind. They're not in your ego. They're not in your super ego. (laughs) They're not in your id. Did I name them all? They're not there. The answers to the questions that your heart has are not inside you. They're not there. They're not in the mirror. You will only answer your questions by looking outside of yourself. You do not have enough information inside yourself. You have to do what John did and ask Jesus. And where do you find Jesus? Where do you go to Jesus? Well, you find him in his word. You find him in the sacraments. You find him in his church. You don't get your, question, your questions answered by yourself all on your own. John sends his questions to Jesus. His questions are answered and Jesus praises John for having asked. There's another way to deal with unbelief, and that's the way the Pharisees did. Nothing Jesus ever did was good enough for them. Nothing Jesus said was good enough. They were the moral superiors. They were the intellectual superiors. They were the theological superiors over Jesus. They set themselves up as judges over what God was doing through Jesus rather than submitting themselves to Jesus. You've seen this. I've seen this so many times. Expressions of doubt and disbelief are often just a smokescreen to cover up a rebellious, sinful heart. You don't want to obey God's laws. You want to play by your own rules. So what do you do? You start to question his existence. You start to question his goodness. You start to question his sovereignty. You start to question his salvation. Why? Because you want to live by your own rules. So you start to doubt who he is and who he said he is and whether he really revealed himself through Jesus. And you know, it drives me crazy that there's this whole swath. It's almost like this whole generation of pastors and teachers who instigate this themselves. They're these really sensitive types, you know, who are always struggling with things. They're always, oh, I'm just wrestling with this. Like it's a badge of honor, you know, that they're wrestling whether or not there was a historical Adam. You know, that that just proves how much more intellectual and sensitive I am, that I'm wrestling with whether there was a worldwide flood or whether God created the universe in the space of six days. You know, it's, it's this, (laughs) it's this kind of this Weasley way to keep yourself from having to 
make any bold declarations of truth. And it makes me wonder, if you can't take God's word at face value on on fundamental foundational historic events, if you're not taking God's word at face value there, how are you reading God's word when it comes to the definition of life when you're reading God's law, when you're, when you're looking at God's definitions of man and woman and marriage and children, what rebellious attitudes are you covering up? What sins are you justifying when you say, I'm just struggling with whether or not there really was an Abraham, you know, whether Jesus said everything he really said. What, what are you covering up? You see, uh, expressions of unbelief and doubt are often a smokescreen for deep sins that need to be repented of and exposed and dealt with before the throne of God. A great pastor friend of mine, by the way, we're running a little bit late. I thank you for your patience. I'm wrapping up, I promise, but I got to say this. Uh, A great pastor friend of mine, I've told this story to a couple of you. He had a longtime church member come into his office one day, a longtime faithful church member come into his office and sit down and say, you know, I'm just really struggling with the whole idea of the Trinity. It just doesn't make sense to me anymore. It's very confusing. It seems contradictory. Uh, I, just, I just can't accept this anymore. It doesn't make sense. And the pastor just looked at him and said, what's her name? And he said, whose name? What are you talking about? He said, what's her name? The woman you're committing adultery with. He got red in the face and he started shaking. And he said, how did you know? <laughs> well, you know how he knows. You don't just give up these things that we all believe and confess just because you woke up in the morning and you say, I don't believe in the Trinity anymore. These things we're covering up for, we don't want to believe that God is the authority and so we have to dismiss him intellectually so that we can go on and do what we want to do. We think that disbelief and belief are just intellectual matters. It's all just philosophical head stuff. It's not. The kind of disbelief that won't accept God's answers That kind of disbelief is rebellion against God. The kind of disbelief that is dissatisfied with the God of the Bible, that's dissatisfied with what God said and did, that kind of disbelief is the disbelief that sends you to hell. That's the kind of disbelief we're talking about here. The kind of disbelief that scoffs against the God of the Bible is the disbelief that sends you to hell. There is no life in playing these games and perpetuating doubt. You have questions, you have doubts. That's normal. I have questions. Where do we take them? What do we do? Do you wonder about the problem of evil? How did God let evil into this perfect creation? You have that question? Enter God's word. Ask God your questions. Do you wonder if Jesus is the only way to life? Do you doubt that God created the world like he said he did or that miracles are true? Bring your questions. Talk to me. Talk to the saints. Study, investigate, see, and search for answers. Don't give up. Don't listen to scoffers. Don't listen to the people who put themselves over God's word as judges. We are under God's word. We submit ourselves to God's word. Don't don't listen to those who put themselves over God's word as if it were a specimen to be dissected and, and ridiculed. You see, it isn't sinful to have questions. What is rebellious, what is sinful, what is wicked, is to never try to answer those questions or to ignore the answers that are right in front of you, to rest easy in unbelief and justify your sin. 
Jesus said this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus. And we thank you for the way that he answered John's questions. And we ask you to answer our questions the same way. Father, help us by your Holy Spirit to deal with doubts the way that John did, to deal with our fears and concerns and and confusion the way that John did. May we not be scoffers who are never pleased, who are never satisfied like those in this passage before us today. And Father, carry us and uphold us and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit so that doubt and confusion and fear is not a way of life. It's only a temporary, momentary thing that we pass through. Father, carry us and our children on to eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.